Good morning, everyone. Um, so my family and I have been away for a few weeks, and this is our, actually our first weekend back, and it feels so good to be back. There's nothing like home, especially when home is New York City on the first day of spring. So um, just really, really glad to be back. Today's message is called Look Up. What do I mean by that? Well, in last week's message, Phil said something important. He actually said a lot of important things, but he said something that was embedded in his message that I want to call out. He drew a distinction between the act versus the intention. So I want to be very careful in saying this morning that when I say look up, I do mean the physical act of looking up at God. I, I do think there's power in that. But what I really mean and what I really want to talk about is the intention, the intention behind the act which is acknowledging that God is God. It's Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I want to explore the power of looking up to the story of a man named Eliphaz, a man who failed to look up. Now, Eliphaz is a character in the book of Job. He's not the title character, he's not Job, but he's important. And I think that God has something to tell us today through Eliphaz and through what he didn't do. It's going to take me a while to get there, so bear with me, because I can't tell you about Eliphaz without first telling you about Job. And so we'll take it in three parts. In part one, I'll tell you the story of Job. It's a long book of the Bible, so I'll do my best to give you Cliff's notes so that you'll have context for part two of the message, which is Eliphaz, a wise man of understanding and experience, and a man who loved God, but a man who failed to look up. We'll talk about the reasons why. And we'll talk about the reasons why it's so important for Eliphaz and for us. Then finally, in part three of the message, um, we'll talk about Jesus. We'll talk about Jesus and how he came to help us to look up. One more thing before I jump into it. As I was preparing for the message today, I was listening to this old sermon on Job written by John Piper, this famous theologian and pastor and writer. And this old sermon was written in 1985. But as I was listening to it, I forgot that I was listening to a 25-year-old sermon until John Piper is talking about the opening scenes of Job where God and Satan have an encounter. And we'll talk about that ourselves in a minute, but he's talking about that meeting and to underscore how important it is, he compares it to another meeting another meeting that the world at that time was anticipating between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. It was coming up in Geneva in November of 1985 in the final years of the Cold War. And I mean, I was just struck uh, by this message from God, right? That the battles of man come and they go and they come again. But the real battle has always been in the heavenly realms. And that battle is for our souls for mine and for yours. And no matter where you are in the Bible, no matter what year it is, 1985 or 2022, there's one message that God is leading us back. Um, so let's jump into it. Here's the story of Job. The Bible says that Job was a great man. God himself spoke lovingly of Job. He called him his servant. He said, there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Job was also a very rich man. He had seven sons, three daughters, 
lots of servants, and thousands and thousands of sheep and camel and oxen and donkeys. Now, in the first couple of chapters, there's an encounter, an encounter that takes place between God and Satan. Satan, the accuser, is at it again, and he's accusing Job. He says Job only loves God because of all that God has given him. And he challenges God to take away everything that Job has. And he says, surely Job will curse you to your face. God says, very well then. He lets Satan take away everything that Job has, all his children, his servants, his animals. But Job stays faithful. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I'm always in awe when I read that. Job loves his God. He reveres his God, no matter the circumstance. No wonder God loves Job. But this isn't the end of the story. Satan and God speak again. God is proud of Job, and he tells Satan, look, Job maintains his integrity, even though he was ruined for no apparent reason. He's still blameless. He's still upright. Satan is ready with his reply, though. He always is. He says, skin for skin. It's not enough to take away everything that Job has. And he challenges God again to strike Job's very flesh and bones. He says, then he will surely curse you to your face. And God again says, okay. He says, Satan, you can strike Job, and he does. He strikes him with painful sores from his head to his toes. But even with his whole body racked with pain, Job is steadfast in his faith. He says, shall we accept good from God, but not trouble? All right, now the scene shifts. Three of, friends, uh, three of Job's friends arrive. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They're filled with deep compassion for Job. Even as they're just approaching from a distance, they can kind of just see him from afar. They can tell he is a shattered man, and they weep for him. They tear their robes. They sit with him for seven days and seven nights, not saying a word, just being with him as he suffered. And now the scene shifts again. Now, up until now, we've been in the first couple chapters of Job. It's a really action-packed two chapters. Um, the next section of Job spans 29 chapters, and it's made up a, of a series of speeches, um, really debates, where Job and his three friends take turns talking. And Job talks first. And when he opens his mouth, he curses the day he was born. It's a big change in tone for Job. Up until now, he's been gritty. He's been determined, he's been steadfast in his faith, but now Job curses the day that he was born, and he asks, why? Why was I ever born? And this offends his friends. They can't stay quiet. They all take turns responding to Job, starting with Eliphaz. He's the ringleader, and he says, as I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. He's saying, Job, come on. You must have sinned. You must have brought the suffering upon yourself. And the friends agree. But Job insists that he's innocent. He insists that he's righteous. And as he debates back and forth with his friends, the discourse crescendos. Job complains that God doesn't hear him. He complains that God is punishing him and that God lets the wicked prosper. And the friends, the friends condemn Job. They continue to say, Job, you must have sinned. They say, your talk is idle. You are mocking God. Job says, you're a bunch of miserable comforters. Eventually, the debate, the debate comes to an end. 
and someone new speaks up. Someone who's been on the scene the entire time, you know, we just don't realize it, but he's been hearing everything and he's been waiting for his moment to speak and when he finally speaks, we hear he's very angry with Job. This is Elihu. He's very angry with Job because he says Job's pride has been revealed in his suffering. He insists on his innocence, insists on his righteousness at the expense of God's character. He used to see God so clearly, but his vision is now blurred. He begins to regard God as his enemy. Elihu is also angry at Eliphaz and the friends because they are quick to condemn Job, even though they're wrong about why Job was suffering. It wasn't because of sin. You know, their idea of justice is too simple. This idea that God serves up punishment according to sin. That was actually part of Job's argument too, right? That he hadn't sinned, so he didn't deserve punishment. And that's why they all just talked in circles. None could prove the other wrong. Elihu's speech spans six chapters of the book, but I think the heart of his message can be found in a verse. Elihu says to Job and to Job's friends, look up. Look up at the heavens and see. Gaze. Gaze at the clouds high above you. With this key message, Elihu is setting the stage for God because God himself now arrives on the scene and he speaks directly to Job in a stern voice. God says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Have you ever given orders to the morning? Over the course of two big speeches, God gives Job real insight into the depth and breadth of his power and authority and his absolute sovereignty over everything on earth. And Job, coming face to face with God and hearing the truth, not about why he suffered, they never actually talk about why he suffered, but coming face to face with God and hearing the truth about who God is, Job repents. He has to. And he says this, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Have you ever heard anything more raw, more real, and more reverent? After Job repents, God deals with the friends. He tells them to sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams, and he tells Job to pray for them. And then God restores Job. He restores Job's fortunes twofold. Job has twice as many animals. He has another seven sons and three daughters, and Job lives another 140 years. Whew, that's the story of Job. 42 chapters summed up as best I could. But hopefully now you have some context for part two of the message, which is Eliphaz. That's where we're going to plant our feet now, is in Eliphaz. Now, remember what happens when Eliphaz speaks. Um, God and Satan had struck a deal. Job loses everything. The friends come, then Job curses the day that he was born, and this doesn't sit right with the friends. And so now Eliphaz, the leader of the friends, speaks up. Job's speech has offended him. He's eager to jump in with a rebuttal, and he says, but who can keep from speaking? And so he speaks a lot. He speaks for two full chapters, um, but there's one key verse that I think captures his message to Job. We read it before, but I'll read it again here now. It's verse 8 in chapter 4. Eliphaz says, as I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Meaning Job, there are consequences to sin. 
And so based on my experience, I'd say you did something to bring this upon yourself. There are two things about this response that I think are worth talking about. Two subtle ways that Eliphaz went from this friend who showed up to being someone who's ultimately rebuked by God. The first is, he answers a question that wasn't asked. What do I mean by that? Well, did Job ask, why am I suffering? He doesn't. In Job's speech, he does ask a question. He asks, why was I ever born? But Eliphaz answers as if Job had asked, why did all this happen? And it got me thinking about life's patterns of questions and answers. We all ask a million questions a day, right? Like, why was my train late? You know, why is there only plain cream cheese at church? Or if you're my kids, why can't I eat M&Ms for breakfast? Or why do I have to take a bath? There are so many whys, so many little whys. Um, and there's a lot of big whys, too. Why do bad things happen? You know, why am I here? I think it's very tempting to say that asking why is in our very nature. But I argue that it's not so much in our nature as it is a consequence of our separation from God. I think you can trace it back to the fall. Like so many things, I think you can trace it back to um, original sin. We weren't created asking why, not originally. When God first told Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree, they don't ask God why. But then Satan comes along and he does this sneaky thing. Satan says, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. He answers as if Adam and Eve had asked why. And he answers with a lie. We all know what happens next, right? Eve eats from the tree, and we've been asking why ever since. Eliphaz answers a question that wasn't asked. And I'm not trying to say that it's evil, far from it. But isn't it interesting that the enemy intentionally employs the strategy to deceive? And I wonder how much of the debate, right, how much of the 29 chapters of talking in circles was really kicked off by Eliphaz? answering a question that wasn't asked. That brings me to the second aspect of Eliphaz's answer, which is his answer is true, but wrong. You know, it's true that there are consequences for sin. We know that. But we also know that Job isn't suffering because of sin. The author of Job very intentionally gives us a special window uh, into this encounter between God and Satan so that we'd know so that we know that that's why Job suffered, not because of sin. And it's easy to miss this one. When Eliphaz talks, it's easy to miss this one because he and his friends have a lot of credibility. The Bible makes it clear they are men of wisdom and understanding and experience, and they are men of God. They say a lot of true and deep and beautiful things about God, and so this one's easy to miss. And guess what? I have a confession to make. I totally missed this the first time I read it. The first time that I read Job, I remember reading Eliphaz saying to Job, you know, you must have sinned, and I nodded along with him. It sounded very sensible to me. I was genuinely surprised when Elihu and then God himself tells the friends that they had sinned. This was literally my face. Most of the time in the Bible, when someone's taken a wrong turn, it's obvious. You know it right away, and you're like, Eve, don't eat from the tree. You know, like, David, don't kill Bathsheba's, Bathsheba's husband. It's not usually mysterious, but when it came to Job's friends, 
I really didn't see that they were at odds with God until it was completely spelled out for me. It was a real twist for me. And it's not just because we're talking about subtle sin. You know, that's only part of it. It was a real twist for me because I am Eliphaz. And I think a lot of us here are. We've got some wisdom. We've got some understanding. We're capable of a lot. And we're good people. We show up. Sometimes we're the only ones who show up. But how often, even as we think we're doing the right thing, is the discourse just not right? You know, where in our lives are there 29 chapters of talking in circles? So what's the lesson? What could Eliphaz have done differently? What can I do differently? What can we all do differently? I think the answer can be found in Elihu's words. Remember, after Job and his friends finished their debate, Elihu, who's been there all along, who hears everything, he says to Job and their friends, look up. Look up at the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds so high above you. He's saying, Eliphaz, Elisha, Jesse, Paul, Lexi, look up. What does that mean exactly? Well, this is where we started today. Look up means the act of looking up towards God, but not just the act, the intention behind the act. Look up means acknowledging that God is God. Look up is Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. And I'm going to make a bold claim here. I'm going to say that looking up is the single most important expression of faith there is. And not only that, it is the key to all other expressions of faith. When we think about expressions of faith, I think we tend to jump to activities like going to church, worshiping, singing songs of praise, praying, reading the Bible. These are all really important. But without first looking up, without also looking up, without acknowledging that God is God, then all of those expressions of faith are just acts. Acts are important. Acts facilitate and even amplify the power of our intention, but there's no power in the act, not without the intention. Looking up is the single most important expression of faith there is, and it's also the key to all other expressions of faith. That makes sense, right? But here's what I'm really driving at. Those other expressions of faith cannot be where looking up stops. You know, what happens when you leave to dispersis or sign off of the live stream? What happens when community groups over or when you close your Bible? Are you done looking up? Eliphaz was done. He was done looking up. He didn't look up before he went to go comfort his friend Job. Why is it so hard for him? Why is it so hard for all of us? I think it's a couple things. You know, for one thing, we hold in our hands all this wisdom and understanding and experience. And isn't it just so much easier to run your life with all of this? Right? And I'm not trying to say this is bad. This is good. These are good gifts from God, and they're so good that we often just fix our gaze here instead of also looking up there. That's number one. Number two is because Elihu isn't talking about looking up at church or looking up at certain times of the day or certain days of the week. He's talking about looking up at the Lord before you comfort a friend. He's talking about looking up at the Lord before you go into your meeting at work. He's talking about looking up at the Lord before you go to school. 
It's the hardest expression of faith for us because we have to admit we're not the ones in charge and we have to surrender everything. Everything, not just that corner of our lives that we're willing to. All right, so let's play a little game of fan fiction now. Let's spend a minute thinking about what could have happened if Eliphaz had looked up. What did he leave on the table when he failed to look up? If he had looked up, do you think that God would have explained things to him? Do you think he would have said, Eliphaz, this is what went down between me and the devil. That's why Job suffered, and so maybe you should change course and not say the thing that you were going to say. Maybe. Maybe not. We always want God to tell us everything. But we have to trust him in his wisdom to tell us what he will when it's right. The thing is, I read those first two chapters. I knew about the exchange between God and Satan, and I still nodded along with Eliphaz. You know, even when we know, we don't know. So what could have happened if Eliphaz had looked up? Let's say God doesn't speak, then what? Does he say, darn, didn't work this time. Try again next time. No answer doesn't mean no power, because in the moment that he looks up, in the moment when I look up, when my gaze here meets the realms of heaven up there, when I acknowledge that God is who he says he is, and that the thing that's happening here is really in the hands of the one who's up there, that acknowledgement brings heaven and earth together and something powerful happens. God says faith, as small as a mustard seed, moves mountains. And aren't our hearts mountains? Created by God, so big and so beautiful and so proud and so immovable. Something powerful happens when we look up at the Lord. Something so powerful that it can move my mountain of a heart. It's mysterious. You know, my words fail me here. I can't fully describe it. I don't know how to tell you that each time I look up at God, it opens up my heart for him to change it. I don't know how to tell you that each time I look up at God, that I understand his heart just a little bit more. What I can tell you is that when our hearts change, everything changes, what we feel, what we think, what we do, and even what we say. If Eliphaz had looked up at the Lord, do you think he would have still said the wrong thing? In the last section of today's message, I want to talk about Jesus. Because God, in his wisdom, knows that we can't do it on our own, that we need help. Jesus came to give us that help to draw our gaze up. You know, Jesus, in his ministry, showed us what to do. You know, he modeled it for us. He looked up. That's right. Even Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, looked up. He drew power from it. Mark 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. The Bible says, taking the five loaves and the, two, uh, and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Mark 7, when Jesus heals a deaf and mute man, Bible says, Jesus looked up to heaven and healed the man. Jesus also looked up before he prayed. John 17, Jesus' farewell prayer, before he's arrested, he prays to be glorified. He prays for his disciples. He prays for all believers, right, all of us. And to start this prayer, the Bible says Jesus looked up. If Jesus looked up, how much more must we look up? And now that he's risen, now that he sits at the right hand of God, he's the one that we're to lift our gaze to. And that's been the plan all along. In that old sermon that I listened to uh, from John Piper, he serves up this brilliant analogy. 
Um, first, he points out that God's actually the one who starts the conversation with the devil. And here's the analogy. He says, it's like God is a jewelry store owner and Satan is a thief. And God, the jewelry store owner, greets Satan the thief by saying, come in. Have you considered my most expensive and precious diamond, Job? Like, that is a crazy thing to do, and it only makes sense. It only makes sense if God, as part of his design, wanted Satan to test Job, wanted Job to suffer, needed Job to suffer to advance his grand plan to lead us back. Because really, what would we learn from an upright and blameless Job? We don't need an upright and blameless Job. We need a Job who suffered, who cried out for Jesus, who prophesied Jesus. In chapter 9, as Job is feeling very, very far away from God, he cries out, if only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me. We can't know the light without first knowing the darkness, and Job, in the darkness of his suffering, cried out for a mediator, for a redeemer, for a savior. It's a longing and a need that's been pre-wired in him, because God has pre-wired it for the world. But until Job knew the darkness, he couldn't cry out for the light, couldn't cry out for Jesus, couldn't prophesy Jesus. And we're focused on Eliphaz today. Of course, God also uses Eliphaz to show us Christ. Remember, God tells Eliphaz and their friends to sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams. That sacrifice stood in the place of Eliphaz and his friends, just like Christ stood in our place when he died on the cross. Remember, um, God instructed Job to pray for the friends so that God would accept the prayer, prayers, just like we pray in Jesus' name, so that God would accept our prayers. God was never interested in telling us the story of an upright and blameless Job or a wise Eliphaz who gets it all right. These things happened as examples for us so that we would know our need for Christ, so that we would lift our eyes to the one who gave it all. I'll wrap it up here with this. I'd like you to think for a moment about your life outside of church outside of Sundays and sermons and community groups. And I want you to think about one area. One area where you say, I got this. I've got all the tools and resources that I need, and I know how to get this done. I think for a lot of people, that's work. You know, it's the perfect place for a bunch of people like us, right? A bunch of Eliphazes to bring our wisdom and experience and to do well enough to feel like we did something on our own. But if you believe that God is who he says he is, why wouldn't you invite him to the boardroom? Why wouldn't you invite him to your Zoom meeting? Why wouldn't you look up before every project, before every meeting? It's like you're Superman, and you run into the burning building in your Clark Kent suit. You're leaving power on the table. You know, maybe for you it's your family. You love your family, you'd do anything for your family, and you're all believers, but for some reason, you can't talk about it. Not really. You know, you have no problem talking about scripture and praying at community group, um, but that open to, openness to the Lord somehow just can't make it past your front doorstep. Most of the time, it's fine. But sometimes, it's not. When you argue and you bicker, is it 29 chapters of talking in circles? If that sounds like you, then I want to challenge you to look at that area of your life and pick one thing, 
Just one thing. Maybe it's your weekly meeting with your boss, or maybe it's your Sunday night dinner. Whatever it is, before it happens, take the time to look up, to acknowledge that God is God and know that he is God and God of the universe, not God of the universe minus your meeting, but God of everything. Just see what happens. You know, I, I realize that most of today's message sounds directed at mature Christians, right, looking to take the next step in their faith, and it is. But if you're new here, if you're exploring what it means to follow Christ, if you want to follow Christ, you're just not sure how, then I want you to know that this can be your next step too. You can look up and acknowledge that God is God and just see what happens next. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you for coming to show us the way. Lord, we know that faith is a gift from you, but we need help to choose it. We need help to express it. We need help to look up at you. So I lift up everyone to you this morning here, Lord. Everyone here, everyone gathered here, everyone online. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would fall on us, that we would be stirred to move, stirred to change, and stirred to look up. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.